Mr. B. Hold it. Do it right. He made a caca on the bed. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. I'm terribly sorry, but there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck. podcast i'm your host anthony king this show is all about our love for author critic and historian danny perry and his cult movies books we're going to discuss a movie from the first book tonight and then we're going to offer up some pairing recommendations and i'm so excited to be joined by this first time guest from the uw cinematheque at the university of wisconsin madison it's jim healy how are you sir i'm doing very well thanks for having me i'm really excited uh i've listened to uh, first time I heard you talk was with your brother on the uh, Taking of Pelham 123 disc, your right, commentary our, for that. Our first, that was our first one. And uh, yeah, that was uh, so much fun getting to just listen to you guys. And then, uh, of course, uh, most recently you've done the Smile commentary for our friend Jonathan Hertzberg's label, uh, Fun City Editions. And so that's that's another home run i loved listening to you guys on that one that was a huge discovery for me this year i love that movie maybe my second favorite comedy after the producers now uh let me let's see here this is your first time here i'm gonna ask you this jim how do you define a cult movie well you know and i've listened to a couple of your other episodes and i and i have to say that it's it's the type of thing like in the way that a uh you know cult you know, a, a religious cult will have, you know, uh, influential and attractive people seduce others into the cult uh, to, you know, be brainwashed or, you know, go sell flowers for a Reverend Sun Young Moon or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's the same kind of idea where someone you look up to, uh, uh, whose tastes you respect and admire, um, and are influential over you will recommend something to you that I think typically has to be something that is not uh, a widespread success. It's not a huge commercial success already, um, or you know, or a kind of like a known quantity, a huge phenomenon. That's why I kind of the the, the couple of films that I have a hard time uh buying as cult movies from the original book of the of the of the original 100 i think like wizard the wizard of oz and casablanca although i guess the wizard of oz was something that i was a success but was even you know was even bigger on television in the ensuing decades but you know casablanca was a huge hit oscar winner for best picture now i think the way uh 
Perry partly defines it in his book is that there are movies that, you know, people return to over and over again and they obsess over and they, then that, and that, you know, to be fair, that's, that's pretty fair, I guess. That's, that's a, that's cultish behavior, right? <laughs> exactly. uh, obsession. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's acceptable for that. And, and of course I'm, I'm grateful to have the, have the essays, but they tend to be for me, uh, first and foremost, something that someone introduces you to, and then you find out perhaps later that there are a couple other outliers out there who really dig this movie too. And, you know, and then of course the internet has taught us that no cult is too big uh, <laughs> or too small and and something that you 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 cling to and you 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 religiously hold up as you know a great film yeah do you remember the first movie that you saw that you kind of knew while you were watching it this is a cult film no i won't i won't say that because you know because I think it's, I think if I go by my definition, which is, you know, something that somebody introduces you to and you realize it's great, that's great. Whereas other people would define a cult movie as, you know, something weird, right? Like, right. Uh, like Repo Man is a cult movie. It is a cult movie and Repo Man's a great movie, but it's very odd and, and visually almost uh, overwhelming, you know? And, sure. and so, and so that becomes a kind of a classic. And that's also another movie that, almost was not not even released but people discovered on video and started passing it around and, and built up the cult following for it so so you know it wasn't until really i read the book that i realized that you know they it's it's not movies that are weird it's movies that are you know that just have these devoted followings and you know and you're usually which are usually built by a handful of people saying hey you got to come check this out with me or you know you you know, later on passing around video cassettes and DVDs. Right. So, but, um, you know, I, 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 I'm sure the wizard of Oz is the first of the 100 movies and, and cult movies that I saw, and then probably a hard day's night, but, but the producers is, was, uh, along with 2001 were both movies that my father, uh, adored and also where's Papa and I, so and I've got stories about all three of those films and how I how I finally came to see them. But the first one I saw of those three, I think, was the producers. I I, I tried to watch two thousand one. We had we had a local library in uh, the northwest suburbs of Chicago where I grew up mostly, um, and uh, they had they actually had a sixteen millimeter film series there, and they, I saw a lot of films there for the first time. Oh, cool. And my, my my father had raved about two thousand one, and I went to see it. Uh, with my brother Pat, and we both walked out after about an hour. I'd say <laughs> we didn't know, you know, what the what the apes were about at the beginning, and what you know what was going on. It was, and you know, we had already seen Star Wars and Close Encounters, so you know, we were we were bored with the pace of it. Right. And it, and it really it wasn't until I got the book cult movies that um, I, I you know I I read this the synopsis and and. Danny Perry's synopses are are great and something that isn't talked about nearly as much. He really he, he captures what the film is and, I, and and it just seemed so strange to me that I had to see it again. And then I saw it again when I was I think 14, 14, 15. They did they had a 
uh, I showed it on Channel Five in New York when we were when we were living in New Jersey, and they had an introduction by Keir Delay, and they did a live stereo simulcast of one of the New York rock stations. So we we brought giant stereo speakers next to our oh. TV and cranked it up. They used to and, do that for Star Wars, where I'm from. Ah. And I, I remember my dad would set up, you know, his big speakers in our basement, and we watched Star Wars with this simulcast. And like that was the first time I kind of experienced, uh, you know, surround sound. It's this huge booming sound, and yeah. I've been I've been kind of chasing that high ever since. Like sure. just that atmosphere, you know. Sure. Well, I, I had had cult movies in my hand for about a year at this point, and then and the movie just 2001 just blew my mind, and you know. Now it's 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 definitely in in, in my top ten favorites of all time, um, and it's a movie I've just I've I've you know turned other people. I remember that just after that screening, I was I was you know I got all the kids in high school turned on to it, and they actually they actually bought me a VHS cassette of it for my 16th birthday one right around the time we got our first VCR. Yeah, I was just you know obsessed with that film. But the other the other big one that my father turned me on to was was. The producers, um, and you know, I, I don't know if we want to get into talking about it right now, but it, it was, um, you know, I, I was my first film hero, perhaps after I guess the Universal Monsters was was Mel Brooks. It's so simple. Step one: we find the worst plane in the world, a surefire flop. Springtime for Hitler. Step two: I raise a million bucks. There are a lot of little old ladies in the world. I love you. I love you. What? I love you! Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only list of backers, one for the government, one for us. Hey, God, I'll do it! You got it! Step four, we open on Broadway. Step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks and we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Does their scheme work? Does this girl know? Do these boys care? Who is he? Is she a Swedish toy? Hmm? Or just another pretty body? <laughs> and what's their story? See the producers, and maybe you'll find out what it's all about. Starring Zero Mostel. Co-starring Gene Wilder. Give me my blue blanket! Give me my blue blanket! Give me back my blue blanket! And Dick Sean as LSD. And I give a flower to the big fat cop. He takes his club and he beats me up. Go the alley, baby! Go! And the first movie of his I saw was Silent Movie. I saw it first run uh, in suburban Chicago and... I thought it was a scream. Uh, I was probably seven years old, maybe going on eight, and I just thought it was fantastic. Um, I'd heard about Young Frankenstein, and I'd heard about the producers, uh, which did fairly played fairly well in Chicago, uh, better than other cities because of the rave by Roger Ebert. But it was, you know, this was 1976, 77. Uh, I, I got to see a re-release of Young Frankenstein in 77, and which became my favorite movie uh, at that point. 
And uh, but I just kept hearing about the producers and, you know, oh, you got to see this Mel Brooks one. Then I saw High Anxiety when that came out first run. And uh, it was still the producers was hard to find. And then I want to say it was 19 possibly as early as 1978, maybe 1979. There was a UHF station in Chicagoland, Channel 44. They ran the Chicago White Sox games. Um, but they had a small library of films, um, some of which they'd show over and over again, like Night of the Living Dead, which right. I could, could never get past the first 10 minutes because it just scared me so much. Oh, yeah. Uh, I finally got around to it. But <laughs> <laughs> when I was eight or nine, I, I couldn't get much beyond that. But, uh, I, you know, I would scour the TV guide and I don't remember if I found it or uh, my parents told me, but... The, the producers was on at midnight on a Saturday night, and uh, my my father stayed up with with me, and I, I'm pretty sure both my older brother Paul and 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 my younger brother Pat, and we watched it all the way through. I remember, you know, it was the latest I had ever stayed up, and I was, you know, <laughs> and I was not the least bit tired, and I just thought it was, you know, just hilarious, just sh- shockingly funny, and you know, and uh, and great. I- so, okay, as a grown man, are you still a big fan of Mel Brooks? Yes. Okay. Uh, great, great fan of his. I mean, uh, I still love everything up through and including uh, History of the World. Um, in fact, I think History of the World is one of his very best. Um, I, I saw Spaceballs right after I graduated high school when I was 18 and was never a big fan of it. There are a few good, few good gags in it, and I like... I like showing it to my daughter who likes it and sure. you know and I know kids love it but I just and I, maybe I would have liked it more if, had I been a bit younger but it just it, it always struck me as kind of too obvious. Yeah. Uh and then uh you know all the rest of them you know have a have a few good jokes in them but I'm not I'm not that big a fan of anything after uh after after history of the world. Um you know, you know what I love his talk show appearances. They're they're great. <laughs> he's he's such a great personality and just seems uh, so welcome and inviting and just loving and you know accepting of of anyone and like you know he'd be the first one to give you a hug if you walked into a crowded room and he was there you know yeah and I I've always felt like uh, that's what I get from his movies and. Uh, I'm with you. See, I, I I'm looking at I've seen the producers, Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles is probably my first Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, History of the World, Spaceballs, and Robin Hood. And I just showed my nine-year-old Robin Hood for the first Robin Hood Men in Tights for the first mm-hmm. time. Of course, he loved it. Um, and and like you're saying, you know, there are some good gags, but you know, it's you know, it's really tired comedy. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like, but you know those early, those early films. And what's funny, I'm going to read something from Danny here in a second. By right. the way, uh, if if you haven't guessed, listener, we are talking about the producers this week. Uh, but imagining sitting in a theater in 1967, seeing the producers for the first time, uh, seemed like. I feel like I would have been shocked. And Danny <laughs> doesn't 
it seems like Danny doesn't really love Mel Brooks or, or his, right. his type of comedy. Yeah, he's he has a lot of um, reservations and criticisms about the producers. And um, I will say that as an adult, seeing the producers into my 20s and 30s and now my 50s, I just watched it again. I would say that it is, I, I can agree with all of those criticisms. Uh, I, I recognize all of them as, as legitimate, um, especially coming from him. And uh, I, can, I can step back and even objectively look at the film and say it's, it's a work by a, uh, by, by a new filmmaker who <laughs> really, really does not have a, a grasp of the language of cinema. Um, it's, I mean, I think almost the first 20, 25 minutes just takes place in one room, you know, which, you know, reveals the fact that it was originally written as a play. Right, right. Uh, I agree with all of the things Danny says about, you know, it's it's kind of sloppily edited, uh, despite being edited by Ralph Rosenblum, who claimed to have saved Woody Allen's first two or three movies. Um, it's, it's not very great looking um, cinematography. It's kind of smudgy. It has that I think it's just I think it's, it tends to mostly be the film stock that Avco Embassy films tended to use in the late 60s. Uh, yeah. It's just it's not it's just not a very good looking film. Uh, it, it could use a it could use a uh, splash from uh, Max Bialystok's coffee cup on the lens and then wiped <laughs> off with his with his neckerchief. Um, it's not great looking. It's not very well edited. It's 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 uh, he doesn't really have any sense of camera placement or, uh, you know, or using using the, the typical cinematic grammar to to tell his story. Um, I, I recognize all of that. And I still think it's the funniest movie ever made. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. Let me let me read something here real quick from Danny. Uh, now, usually I try to pick out something from Danny's essays uh, that kind of explain why he might consider them a the movie to be a cult movie. And some of the movies that he covers, he doesn't get into that for one reason or another. Uh, but this is so the producers is one of those. This is what I pulled out. He says, well, the producers caught on. And sure enough, as Brooks had hoped, his name was soon known across America. But there are many of us who believe that Brooks's accomplishments in films are not as great as what he did before he became really famous. The producer showed that he had tremendous promise to become a top-flight comedy director once he learned the intricacies of filmmaking. Brooks's career since has been disappointing, although he has been a box office winner. The problem is that Brooks equates innovation with simply breaking taboos, cursing, grossness, sex, body humor and existent generic for, uh, generic forms, and has been content to make spoofs rather than original comedies. Again, he's he's not wrong at all. Uh, no. And I, I think that's why people loved Mel Brooks. You know, the man hasn't made a movie in God, you know, Dracula Dead and Loving It was his last one, however long ago yeah. it was. But I think people still love Blazing Saddles and, and, and Young Frankenstein very much, and rightly so. I think they're both great films. I probably would would call them masterpieces. They're just 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 below the producers for me in terms of laughs. And and the other and the thing I, I would counter with what Perry says there is that on on those films and then, and starting with the Twelve Chairs, which is his you know, his the, the film he made between the producers in Blazing Saddles, which was not a success, but is, you know, 
he's he's um he's teaching himself uh filmmaking by doing it and you see him becoming more um more capable of if not elegance then occasional grace notes as a as a storyteller yeah um and uh Blazing Saddles uh, certainly has a uh, a tradition of you know madcapness that it borrows from I think uh, Looney Tunes animators, uh, which um, you know it pays direct reference to at one point. Right. And then I'd say I'd say Young Frankenstein, you know, it has its share of you know boob jokes and things like that. But it's it's a very it's a very classy film. Yeah. Um, you know, it has a few gross outlines, but it is it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. It is beautifully edited. It is one of the one of the most gorgeously photographed comedies of all time. Gerald Hirschfeld shot it in black and white, and um, it is it is very close to a perfect movie. It doesn't quite have the 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 laughs that. The amount of laughs that bring me to tears that the producers has, but uh, it's close. It's very close. I think it's a great film. You know, I I, I think I'd I'd say Young uh, Frankenstein is probably my top Brooks, followed by the producers. Yeah, <clears throat> only can't argue be- with that. Only because every other <laughs> Mel Brooks movie that I've seen, I tend to burn out on the laughs. Like by the yeah. last say 15 minutes of the movie and he doesn't make long movies. The producers is what? 88, 87 minutes long, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I burn out because there's, I mean, it's laugh after laugh after laugh after laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm tired of laughing by the end of the movie after 90 minutes. Whereas young Frankenstein, whatever it is, you know, like you said, it's a little classier and maybe that's it where I'm not completely burned out of, of laughter by the end of the movie. Right. It's a hysterical I, movie, but and part of the you know part of the growth for him as a filmmaker comes through making these parodies. So he's learning how to make movies by imitating great movies, uh, and you know, and then finding a twist and, and kind of turning them around. And so while you you know while he gets the laughs by finding the twists, he also uh, by by imitating them visually, and 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 you know, and narr- and narratively, he also holds on to the uh, the bit of emotion um, that comes from those movies too. You know, there's, there's something there's something uh, actually touching about the uh, the very cartoonish uh, citizens of Rockridge coming together at the end, and you know, and defeating the bad guys. And there's you know, and the relationship between the um, the monster and 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 Doctor Frankenstein Frankenstein uh, uh, is um, you know he's actually he he gets something out of that and and I don't I gotta say even though I like silent movie and uh, high anxiety and and even more history of the world um, he doesn't really achieve that after that because he's really just going for the for the laughs uh, after that history of the world has something a little bit different in that it's, you know, he changes it up with the, with the different segments. Um, He's going for the lots of laughs, but there's something almost autobiographical 
to that film in that it's you know the 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 movies that meant the most to Mel Brooks and at the oh, same yeah. time with the casting it's the it's not just the history of the world it's the history of comedy yeah. he's got all of these cat skills guys that he came up with um you know Gregory Hines was originally supposed to be Richard Pryor who he worked with on writing plays and saddles oh interesting um yeah he had his uh, uh horrible uh drug related fire accident oh, just yeah, before yeah. production began so he couldn't gotcha. do it okay wow, um, I know that. and 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 so it's you know it's the it's almost like it's all it almost would have been a perfect last film because it's a summation of you know his yeah his career and his life and all of his friends in it um and uh, it also has i think uh, the only appearance in any of his films by carl reiner who uh oh who, really who, who i didn't realize until recently is the voice of god in the Moses segment. Uh, oh my, I didn't. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and uh, and and then, but I think, but even by that point, he's kind of you know, he's he's just looking for the hits. And um, I think you know, if if that hap- if the if if the reason why I think part of the reason why Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are are, are so great today, um are still so fondly remembered as, you know, his best films today is, is, um, is because of, you know, they actually have actors playing characters who, sure. uh, at least some of them who, who don't totally resemble just cartoon characters. Right. Um, and, and also, uh, interestingly, um, you know, he, he's, he's not even in young Frankenstein and he only has a couple of brief appearances in blazing saddles. He lets, he lets other serious actors kind of carry the weight. And I yeah. think that, I think that helps a lot too. Oh, um, for sure. I think, I think he's a great performer. I think he's a very funny guy and he's perfectly fine and silent movie, high anxiety and, and history of the world. He's you know, makes me laugh a lot in those films, but he's, he doesn't, he doesn't have, um, he doesn't have the pathos, uh, of Gene Wilder. Oh no. Uh, well, okay, so uh, bring it back to the producer. So this is your favorite Mel Brooks. Uh, give me your thoughts on the musical version. Do you do you even care to listen to the music or or watch that movie at all? So I saw the musical with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Oh, great! In Chicago, uh, in previews, it was uh, well a trial run, I guess. I guess yeah. they did a you know a lot of out of town trial run yep. this was late 2000 uh, and it went to broadway just a few months later you know where it opened with previews and things and it was you know uh as as far as i can tell very you know very close if not identical to what actually opened up on broadway i mean the yeah. cast was the cast was kept the same and maybe there were some things that were removed and changed but i really really enjoyed it uh we had a good time and uh, I remember my wife said that she felt that Matthew Broderick wasn't quite right, that he was just kind of overdoing it. And and I remember thinking, he seemed okay. He seemed okay. I totally enjoyed Nathan Lane. But then, uh, was it flash forward five years later, I was in New York uh, visiting my brother who was, I think, making a movie or he, he was in New York for some reasons. I, I just went up by myself and we hung out for a few days and we went to the Ziegfeld Theater and saw the movie version and it, it's, you know, it's got a few laughs, especially towards the end. He's got some new stuff in there that I think is pretty funny. Um, but, 
you know, it just it 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 felt a little tired by that point, and yeah. um, and Broderick seemed really like I finally recognized yes. uh, what my wife was talking about because he didn't he he and for the film he did not tone it down at all. He's doing a full on stage performance, and yeah, and you know you you uh, you could, you have to blame the director a little bit for that, um, for you know for not knowing the difference between right. what what needs to be done on stage and what needs to be done in the film, but. Um, but it's you know it's not a, it's not anything I've ever revisited. Uh, yeah. But I like the songs. You know, I think the songs are are fine. You know, I I think that uh, <clears throat> I remember when it opened up on Broadway and hugely successful, ran for a long time. Um, I got the cast. I'm a big Broadway guy, so of course I got the cast album, and I had seen the film before like the, the original mel brooks film before and so that was kind of in my head and so sure. it took me a while to get used to matthew broderick because i'm not a huge you know he kind of plays the same sort of character when he's uh in new york doing stage stuff yeah. he always plays kind of the high anxiety nebbish right. nerd you know, yeah nerd guy and uh by that time i was like <sighs> again <laughs> yeah um and then, and then I totally agree. By the movie, I'm like, "Holy crap! Reel it in! What yeah. is happening here?" But um, I, I still I adore the musical, and it just it to me it proves the genius of Mel Brooks that he, I mean, he's not sitting down like arranging and, and like fully composing these songs, but he wrote these songs. Yeah, the man is absolutely brilliant. And uh, like when I realized I got the cast album, I'm reading the liner notes and everything. And I realized Mel Brooks wrote all of this. Yeah. Uh, that's when it hit me that the man is truly a genius. Yeah. Well, he had already written um, three of the songs for the movie already. Yeah. yeah. One thing I read about him recently was comparing him to Lionel Bart, the composer of Oliver. Yeah. Not, neither of them had any classical training in music and neither of them can write music. Um, so they, they, I guess they work with an actual composer and hum out the tunes yeah. and, uh, and, you know, and lyrics of course come, but both, both of them uh, work that way. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's brilliant. And yeah, I, I do love Mel Brooks. Uh, now let's talk, let's talk about the movie here. Um, the performances. So this is uh, basically Gene Wilder's, first movie right he did he did this and and uh bonnie and clyde yeah he did it came out in 67 yeah it's bonnie and clyde he's only on screen for about five minutes but it's a really memorable debut it's a great sequence and yeah you know he's and he's very gene wilder-esque in it um and but uh uh he had done a play with uh ann bancroft uh i think before she'd married mel brooks and and was was just dating him uh, it was Breck's uh, mother, Courage, and oh, yeah. uh, and that's where Brooks discovered Wilder, and um, he uh, you know had him in mind uh, from the earliest uh, stages of writing of you know of making him Leo Bloom. I mean, you know, it's the what's really cool is that between this and Bonnie and Clyde, we get to see kind of the now I I'm. I'm 40, so I'm a little younger than you, but 
I grew up like Gene Wilder was a part of my childhood, especially in yeah. the 80s. And so uh, it's really cool to go back and watch these two movies and see kind of the birth of the Gene Wilder that we yeah. grew up with. And I love that. I mean, just his entrance alone, maybe one of the greatest or the greatest uh, cinematic like character entrances in in movie history ever comes in the producers where he just you know he pokes his head in uh, and immediately just the oops. yeah the way i mean you can't do his face but you no. can picture you're talking about gene wilder and you can picture his face he's kind of got that he's always had sort of that chronic smile like his yeah. lips curl just a little bit into a smile like right. at at all times and you know he knows he's walked in on this he does you know, this really awkward moment between uh max and and is it hold me touch hold me, me touch me <laughs> and and just the way he he reacts is hysterical and then he backs out and i mean it's so memorable and that alone uh is why the producers is one of my all-time favorite movies zero mustel is who i love again i'm a big broadway guy so you know, I've got so many records with Zero Mostel on them, um, and I adore him. But he's, you know, he's big all the time, yeah. In whatever he does, and Gene Wilder. I mean, I suppose it's just Gene Wilder in whatever he does. But they, uh, what I find really interesting is that they match each other's energies, but they're two different energies from like complete different sides of the universe. Totally. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I don't know how else to explain that. Well, but it's a perfect I, pairing. Yeah. And the thing about Mostel, well, first of all, the one, one thing I'll say about Wilder is that, uh, is that to hear Brooks tell it is that part of his talent was perhaps even that smile that you're, that you were talking about, that his, he, he when he grimaces or and does things he still look he he still looks like he's smiling like he like he almost wants to break out and laugh <laughs> and and the way brooks would tell it is that he 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 was an actor who didn't at first at least know his own strengths and didn't know he was being funny and even during this production of mother courage the audience would break out and laugh and brooks would come and see him and ann bancroft backstage and he would ask him why are they laughing and he said trust me you're funny you know, he says, I'm not trying to be funny. And he says, trust me, you're funny. And that's when he knew he was the perfect part to play, wow. to play a uh, perfect actor to play Bloom. But, you know, with Mostel, it's a totally different kind of acting, as you say. And, and Mostel is one of, for, for me, uh, and he's not perfect in every movie by any means, but I totally agree with the, with the statement, you know, and I, I'm not, I don't know how many actors have said it. That you know, acting is not acting; it's reacting. Yeah. But Zero Mostel is not a reactor. Zero <laughs> Mostel is an actor, and he's always in his own world, and he's always just you know doing something. Um, and uh, the the least convincing thing he's he does in, in any of his films, and including the producers, is is listen. <laughs> it convince you that he's that he's that he's listening to the other person. Um, but that almost, no, I can say not almost, it doesn't matter in the case of Max Bialysak because right. that's who this guy is. I th I'd say, you know, towards the end, he delivers 
when Gene Wilder gives his monologue to the court. Uh, he, he, he doesn't mug nearly as much as he does in the True. rest of the film. True, yeah. And, 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 and allows Wilder to have that moment, which he wrote it. He wrote uh, himself as a monologue, and Brooks, I guess, did a rewrite job on it. But that was oh, his... Wow. That was He had no lines originally in that scene, and, and that was... That was, you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, who, who, uh, who, I've never sung with anyone before. I've never laughed this hard with anyone right. before. All the things, you know, who, who cared about me? It was Max Bialystok, no one else, you know. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's touching, and, and, but mostly because of the way Wilder's playing it, not really the way, oh, yeah. the way Mostel is, is playing off him. But that's, that's the kind of tradition. Uh, he's coming from, or maybe maybe something he gradually grew into, especially after the blacklist. But he was, you know, uh, in his very first film, um, he he gets one of the uh, actors in the film to to crack up spontaneously. Uh, Douglas Dumbrell, who was a character actor at uh, at MGM, a movie called Dewberry Met a Lady from 1943, and there's a moment where. Uh, <laughs> where Mostel does something spontaneous that makes this guy crack up on screen. So, you know, but I, you, you, you just have to imagine that the energy inside this particular man, when you see his style of performances and to know that he had 10 years where he couldn't do it at all. He was just completely uh, immobilized by the blacklist. And, yeah. um, you know, so... You, you you kind of forgive him for <laughs> for his uh, shenanigans and and ego and and uh, scene stealing, but uh, or attempts to steal scenes. Um, but I don't think he can do it from Gene Wilder. I think I think no matter how big he is, Gene Wilder steals the producers. Uh, oh, is the p- performance of the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, his like I said, his facial expressions, and then we get those big outbursts. Uh, you know, that people, you know, tend to relate to like uh, Al Pacino does, you know, she's got a great ass yeah, know, from yeah. type of type of stuff. But uh, so but Gene Wilder does all this stuff and, you know, he he freaks out and he pulls out his little uh, his little blankie. And, yeah. you know, I mean, there's just little bits in here that are I mean, it hits. I mean, there's probably, I mean, there, there's a laugh every 30 seconds, I would guess. And so by, for me, by the time they get to <laughs> planting the bomb, the, the, the dynamite, which is, I mean, so silly. I'm just like, Ugh, I'm laughed out guys. Like there's Yeah. Well, and you know, there's a sequence that was cut. And in fact, it was great to see it again on the DVD because in 1980, uh, it wasn't even a re-release. There was a neighborhood theater um, where we lived in, in suburban Chicago that I think it, it just I think just to fill in oh, for a week's programming be- before the next blockbuster came out, uh, played a double feature of High Anxiety and The Producers. Uh, and so I had seen The Producers already like maybe twice with commercials on TV. Sure. But we went to see it at this theater and, and it was a Saturday afternoon and, and Pat and I went and there weren't a lot of people there. And then suddenly there was this scene uh, after after they light the quick fuse, they actually put out the quick fuse and get the whole thing set up again with the plunger, put the plunger outside the theater. 
and then the uh, inebriate uh, who they were dancing with in the bar earlier was played by William Hickey. Yeah, William Hickey, yep. Shows up outside the theater and drunkenly kind of stumbles into the alleyway where the plunger is without them, you know, without any of the guys. And he thinks it's a shoe shine stand, so he puts his foot on it and, it and it goes down. And then the theater blows up. And we never saw that scene again until uh, I think they, they, it's an extra on the DVD like 25 years later. And according to Brooks, he, it was never in any release version. So the print we saw that day had to have oh been my. some kind of so had to have been some kind of preview cut that you know was in the wow. libraries of uh, embassy films or something like that. Um, maybe it was the best print they had and they and they sent it out but oh my that was God. that was kind of great but that was the only difference is just that one like two minute scene um oh that is crazy yeah you know i i do love this story like i said i'm a i'm a big theater guy and uh you know i, I and i love movies about making movies i love uh theater about making theater and so here we have a movie about making theater and I, what's so funny, I had just finished listening to this uh, podcast miniseries uh, called Burnt. And it's on the, uh, the musical Rebecca, based off the, the novel and the movie, hmm. um, that was a huge hit in Europe. It was written over in Europe, a huge hit. And a producer over here in New York loved it and he wanted to bring it here. And there's this whole, like huge scandal that you would never wow. assume like i mean it, yeah. it, it, my mind was blown for a lot of a lot of embezzling and money and, being pocketed and you know fake dead people and then like yeah. like child pornography gets in there somehow i mean it's crazy. wow when was this when did when when did when was that production past uh it, it, it never made it to broadway but right. uh like the i mean we're talking past five years oh okay wow just Jeez. recently Hmm. But I, I just thought it was funny. We're talking, you know, because uh, we, we had set this up, you know, I don't know, a month ago or so. And so I come across this podcast series and I'm like, oh, this is perfect timing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, this this type of stuff, you know, does happen. And Danny yeah. does, I think, mention in his essay where, you know, he's heard stories of. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, the it doesn't matter if, if it's uh, music or movies or theater, it's the entertainment industry and it's full of greedy ass people Yes, and, and they're trying to get whatever money they can. And yeah. I, you know, I, I think, you know, Mel uh, had, you know, he had paid his dues, you know, of course, coming up writing with uh, who, who was he writing for? Well, he wrote for uh, originally for your show of shows, Sid show Caesar. Shows, yeah, yeah he right. was. And then Sid Caesar had a couple of, of his own uh you know, uh, after your show of shows, they did Caesar's Hour and I think yeah. one other show. And Brooks was, you know, built, uh, worked himself up to be the head writer of all those shows. And then, uh, yeah. And then, so yeah, he had a rich showbiz history. And then he was a drummer too. So, right. And so, so he, he comes up and, and, you know, you, you, I haven't read his, uh, his book, but, you know, uh, by all accounts, he, he, was kind of getting screwed when he was writing for Sid Caesar and, and kindly finally got his, his, uh, you know, whatever he was owed. But, you know, I, I like that he comes out of the gate here with his first movie, kind of this commentary on the entertainment industry that there are <laughs> executives, you know, swindlers out there. And, and then of course puts his, his, what, what we now know as his typical Mel Brooks comedy, um, 
swag into it but i just thought that was funny this is he's coming out of the gate yeah uh, with with a, a yes hysterical movie but you know it may be sort of a little middle finger to to past you know bosses yes well uh, uh the way he says it he, he he and i think you feel it in the characterization of max and and, and leo um it was an actual producer he worked for uh did some assistant work for and it was a guy who um had a parade of little old ladies who would come into his office, who he would disappear with, <laughs> romance, and uh, and they would come out and say, "What's the name of your latest production?" And, oh, it's called Cash, and they would <laughs> they would write him checks, and uh, and that's how he that's how he produced his plays. Uh, if you listen to the commentary on the most recent Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, they name the they they mentioned the producer by name, oh, but I didn't really? get a chance to look up you know what were his productions and sure. and things like that. But Brooks worked for him for a short time and 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 carried that idea around for ten years and started to turn it into a, first a novel and then a play in the early '60s, late '50s. Uh, at which point it, he was convinced that it needed to be a movie. You know, I, I don't know if it's because uh, I know the musical so well, but I, I just feel like uh, this movie is so, like the beats are, that's like, I don't know, he the way he write, he wrote it, the beats are perfect for songs. And again, yeah. I, I don't know if it's because I know the musical so well or not, but, you know, like when he, when Max is um, trying to, get leo on board for for his idea where he's going back and forth you know on either side of his yeah. head right uh, you know first we do this second we do this and we're off to rio and i mean <laughs> like that's a that's a song right there sure well and know, then he I, breaks into a song yeah exactly right yeah, we're going to rio you know it's <laughs> just so I, i'm just so uh, always impressed with mel brooks um <clears throat> and it it does stink that you know my uh it was kind i don't want to say tarnished but i was like eh kind of lost it with uh robin hood men in tights but yeah whatever uh, it's neither here nor there i for one i i love space balls but again because i'm yeah. young, younger than yeah. you i i did grow up with that uh but i think <clears throat> yeah between young frankenstein and the producers he he did and blazing saddles of course but he really nailed something special that you you know most filmmakers could never attain in in a career in a lifetime i think that's true and um you know part of it's breaking the fourth wall which you know he's not the first person to do that you look at i mean first of the as i mentioned the looney tunes animators and then you've got you know Looney Tunes animators who go then go into live action films like Frank Tashlin and oh know, yeah yeah you know there's a whole you know and then there's you know even back into the 30s you've got the Marx Brothers and W C Fields and these guys who are you know who are constantly you know looking at the camera and right. commenting on the action and you know but then he starts to he starts to be to start doing it visually right um, with you know having a is it is it high anxiety where if, cameras backing up very slowly and oh, kind yeah. of hitchcocking and then you hear the window breaking in the room right yeah yeah and it stops and and keeps going um you know that's uh that's that's i think part of his um growth as a filmmaker you see that and and he, he learns to do it visually and not just you know when it's zero mostel stopping and talking to him which was something that 
Zero Mostel was doing on stage already. And, right. And funny thing happened on the way to Foreman Island, I, I assume, in Fiddler on the Roof, too, where yeah. he would, you know, just turn his head to the audience and make a comment about somebody. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Fiddler kind of lends itself to that. Where well, he's narrating it. Yeah, himself, te- yeah, Tevya. But, yeah, I mean, you. it's almost... like Okay, so uh, a few months ago, I watched The Hot Rock for the first yeah. time. Yeah. And Zero Mostel plays the father of... Paul Sand. Yes, of Paul Sand. And... I mean, I was expecting at some point in that movie, he was going to come to the camera yeah, you know, and yeah. just lean into the camera and talk yeah. to me uh, because I, that's, that's zero Mostel for you. That's, that's what he does. And so you expect nothing net less from him, but yeah, and, he and, does do, he does bring his bigness to that film. He's very, <laughs> you know, uh, he, you know, he tends to dominate, which is good that, you know, they don't introduce him until like the last third oh of the film or so. Yeah. That, um, I mean, that, but, that, but that I think scene he's very in the warehouse. Funny. Yeah. The scene in the warehouse is like, the Zero Mostel hour there. We're yeah. only watching him. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, um, okay. Movie comes out 1967. 68, I think. 68, okay. Uh, and we're, we're like openly dealing with and laughing about Nazis. Right. Uh, lots of people are offended and don't think that's funny at all. I completely understand that, and that's I, I do not blame them at all. Uh, but so we're here. We are in the '60s, and Mel, Mel Brooks, a Jewish man, is saying with two, you know, Jewish. I mean, I, I don't know if they're supposed to be Jewish, but Danny writes that they are. Um, uh, Max and and uh, yeah, it's it's never explicit, but it you know you just assume uh, you just assume by the casting and their names and you know and. Uh, it's just you know that's that's I think that's what it's supposed to be New New York theater you know right uh, but <laughs> so we're laughing at Nazis in this movie they go and meet Franz Liebkin uh, who is God uh, who who is that Kenneth, Kenneth Mars. Mars Kenneth Mars so freaking funny but uh, and so they go out they get him to sign the contract they're going to produce Springtime for Hitler and they're walking down the the sidewalk just openly with the Nazi armbands <laughs> and like for a minute, just like eh, it's, it's nothing until, you know, I think it was it uh, Leo says, you know, yeah. I can't wear this anymore. Uh, I just think that's funny. And and then when they introduce Dick Sean, and I want to talk about his audition here in a minute, but yeah. you know, when they actually open the show and it becomes a hit, but Dick Sean comes out and I mean, he's doing the, the strangest thing he's playing this hippie yeah. Hitler character. And I, I just think it's so ballsy, you know, now sure. But especially maybe in 1960 in the sixties. Yeah. What's the, what's the equivalent in the musical? He's not, you know, cause that's something that dates it for the sixties, but in the, in the musical, what is it that he's just very campy and kind of flamboyant Hitler? Is that what's the, yeah. 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 He's, it's, uh, I mean, he's as flamboyant as uh, uh, Roger Jane. Debris. Yeah, Debris. Yeah, Roger as... Debris and Carmen Ghia. <laughs> white, white, white. It's the color of our carpet. <laughs> my, my, maybe my favorite line in the film. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. There's so many though. I, I really love in in the the movie version of the musical. I really love that moment too when Roger Bart. Oh, and I know we're talking about the original movie here, but Roger Bart opens the door. 
And he goes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he holds that S forever. Oh, that's so funny. But I mean, this is equally, if not more funny. Um, but anyways, back to Nazis for a minute. Yeah. I, I, it, it just kind of blows my mind. I blew my mind again watching it last night that we're laughing at Nazis. Yeah. Well, he's not he's not the first to do it, but he might have been he might have been the first to do it since the actual war. Uh and since the, you know, since everyone since the moment where everyone learned about the the extent oh, the extent yeah. of the atrocities of the Holocaust. So, you know, because you've got you've got the Three Stooges doing several shorts where they dress up like Hitler. You you oh, nasty spy. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there's also um the movie that Mel Brooks ended up remaking, uh, Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be. Oh. Um, but these are all made during or even even before America enters the war. I think the Stooges shorts, one of them was made before before Pearl Harbor. Um, but it, uh, it's, um, you know, he's not the first. But, it, you know, I think, you know, after the war, we learn about... Uh, holocaust and 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 the extent of it and 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 i think it's just you know it's just not it's not something uh that anybody else except mel brooks sees as you know content for for humor <laughs> um but it's i don't know it's perfect uh it, it's it's still <laughs> funny uh i don't know if it's still shocking to anybody to, to yeah. see this but uh, you know it's um you completely understand the uh the audaciousness of their scheme um and uh and the initial reaction of the 1967 audience watch, <laughs> watching uh a musical called springtime for hitler and 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 by the way did you ever think you'd ever love a show called springtime for hitler <laughs> i mean look people walked into the theater they bought tickets you know in advance of a show they knew was called springtime for hitler and the theater was packed right. so what what did they expect yeah <laughs> well it's opening night uh right. so you know they they're they're papering the house to to get it packed but uh that's one of another one of danny perry's criticism is that he doesn't quite buy that an audience that would be upset and shocked by by that opening number uh, and as you say, a show called Springtime for Hitler would then turn around and recognize that, oh, it's supposed to be funny, you know. Right. All right. Uh, let's talk. Which, which it's not. <laughs> right. Real quick, let's talk about Dick Sean. Yeah. Uh, he mistakenly comes into the interview. And oh my God, the audition process, we kind of smash cut to dozens and dozens and dozens of men. With yeah. the you know with, with the with the mustache and like you know doing the zig hail yeah. of all uh, sizes yeah uh, yeah and so we go through this audition and then Dick Sean uh, just kind of mistakenly wanders on stage and he's playing. Well, wait, I mean, wait. Before we get to Dick Sean, yes. the uh, the actual audition might be my favorite sequence of the film. It has more laughs per second than any, and there are lines in the film that you know maybe aren't aren't going to get the big belly laughs. But for me, it's, it's this movie. I, I, I can't be objective about it anymore because it's buried into my subconscious <laughs> almost. And every, every nuance of that sequence, well, the whole movie really, but that sequence in particular, the different actors, the, the, <laughs> the guy who's you know, singing, maybe it sounds like the tail end of the, uh, 
Largo al Factotum yeah. aria from uh, from Barber of Seville, and then he, he gives a big raspberry when yeah. they when they cut him off right at the very end, and the guy <laughs> and the and the other guy who says who says. Uh, uh, it's just it's just about to wrap up his song and they go thank you and he goes oh you mean i didn't i'm sorry and then he goes you're sorry <laughs> i just love that i love that whole scene and then there's a guy who's who uh oh the the, the guy singing the the barber of seville thing he looks like clark gable he's got a clark he does, gable yeah. mustache uh, okay so so yeah dick sean comes staggers into the theater accidentally what? i mean Look, what is he doing <laughs> yeah um well, it's it's a it's a you know Dick Sean is at this point I think he's older than Mel Brooks so he's like, oh really yeah he's like 40, 44, 45 years old so it's he's not only playing an aging hippie he's playing a kind of uh, counterculture comedian's idea of you know what a hippie is um, and it should be uh, uh, it should almost be as offensive as uh well, springtime for hitler is for that audience <laughs> but it's 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 not it's 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 so weird and uh i i can't say out of touch but it's just so it's 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 he's such a unique character you know that it's just it's just hysterically funny and and even though love power is not a uh <laughs> mel brooks composition i I might like it just as much as as the other songs in the film. Uh, it's 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 just one of the. That's another. I think Perry acknowledges. I think that's you know one. He thinks that's one of the funniest things in the film is is that song. Which is goes so... into the sewer with the yahoo running through, <laughs> and it goes into the river that we drink. <laughs> yeah, the the lyrics are just hysterical, and you know I. I I was watching again last night and uh, I had just recently spoken to Hertzberg for the show and you know how, <clears throat> how he um, like kind of defines fun city editions as uh, movies outside of their time. <laughs> so all I could think of were the words outside of their time, outside of their time as this musical sequence of, like these hippie, you know, he's yeah. got the three the three girls behind him in there Play, playing instruments it, that you never hear in any of the songs. No, it's, no. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's like, where the hell did this music come from? His group, his group. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta bring out my group. Who? Okay, so Dick Sean was who was Dick? He was a comedian, well, right? Yeah, he was. Um, I don't. I don't think he was. I think he was too young to be a vaudevillian. Although, you know, maybe maybe burlesque type stuff. But yeah, he was mostly a. Uh, a stand-up and he's in some some 50s films um you know just an an odd kind of oversized comic personality yeah uh not uh dissimilar in style and in looks he he looks actually looks a little bit like jonathan winters oh yeah um and uh and and both also cast in it's a mad 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 world um and that's probably his best known movie part outside of the producers. He plays Ethel Merman's son yeah. in that uh, Sylvester. And he's, he's extremely funny. And in fact, it's a very, it's a, it's a character who's very similar to Lorenzo St. Dubois. So yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> it, if anybody who's seen Mad Mad World isn't going to be totally thrown off by, by uh, LSD, um, <laughs> uh, you know, if they just, they kind of immediately recognize Sylvester again, he dresses the right. same and, you know, and, 
and his you know a lot of his manners oh man oh man especially after he's playing you see him as hitler you know after the during the opening oh my god it's uh, so he, he you know the like uh oh it's supposed to be joseph uh gables walks out yeah, on stage i he's need like, my little joe yeah he's like <laughs> zig hail man and how like, how baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh and uh <laughs> and then talking to ava brown who's in uh uh, I leave you, I leave you, baby. Now leave me alone. <laughs> I mean, it's just the silliest. I mean, it's again, it, it's real fun seeing kind of the beginning of Mel Brooks. You know, uh, a, a man whose movies, at least one of his movies, everybody loves, and uh, it, it's it's. I think the producers is a real special thing, you know. With it's the beginning of Mel Brooks directing. It's the beginning of Gene Wilder, um, and it, it's it's just this. Uh, to me, it's timeless, just because of the comedy for some yeah. reason. Well, you know, back to the the idea of it being the beginning of Mel Brooks. Um, part of its success, part of the reason why I think the movie works as well as it does is that he is coming at it as a as a fully formed comic personality. He's 43 years old, uh, or 41, 41 when he makes the movie. Uh, so, you know, he's not, he's not an old man, but he's not a spring chicken anymore. <laughs> and um, he is, you know, has, as, as Danny Perry points out, you know, these, these decades of comedy writing and Catskills performing and, and, and the, uh, 2000 year old man routine with with Carl Reiner which is really when this movie gets made is it's probably the reason why he's able to 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 get a movie made because he was known for that right uh and also i think the fact that the producer the actual producer of of the producers Sidney Glazer really loved the script and believed in it and believed in him as a director he, although mel brooks apparently had to convince him he said you know i know the script i know the story it's in my head you know i i'm i'm i should be the director and and he was able to do it. And um, he also had uh, been the voice, uh, his improvisational comedy of an animated short film called The Critic. Yeah. Which I think is 1963, directed by Ernie Pintoff, which won the Oscar. So, you know, he had some, he had some clout sure. uh, already in the movie industry. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and so... You know what he what he doesn't have, as we discussed already, is the you know is are the filmmaking chops. This kind of at hand knowledge or, or, or filmmaking grammar to kind of to to make it you know uh, uh, maybe let's 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 hope for one tenth of Ernst Lubitsch's elegance. You know right. on uh, <laughs> on the original to be or not to be. He, he doesn't he doesn't even achieve that. But um, you know what. You know what he has is, is is a sense of joke telling and um, and character building, and you know he'd been working on the script for ten years, so he knew he knew these characters and who they were, and and you know and and one other great thing about them that we we almost got to earlier is that um, despite uh, Max's uh, plea to the judge at the end, uh, they're unrepentant. They are you know they are greedy and they are in business for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to raise money and 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 to rip off people, uh, which 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 goes against the tradition of um, uh, certain uh, shall we call them impresario movies, which uh, I get. I'll, we'll talk more about that when we get into our pairings at the end because I've okay. I've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, you know I think 
he uh, Max has that the kind of perfect line that sums everything up. He says, "I picked the wrong script, the wrong director, the wrong cast. Where did I go right?" Right. <laughs> and and it's uh you know again, it's, some may think that's cheesy or you know a little silly. I think it's hysterical, and it, it's exactly what you know. Like you said, uh, they're in court; they're completely unrepentant. The movie ends. Bah, bah, uh, yeah. Yeah, step fleecing fleecing prisoners and the warden out of their out of their <laughs> out of the money they make, you know, working in the in the laundry Gotta room or whatever. Sing, sing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, prisoners of love. Um, but uh, back to the courtroom scene, you know, just just lines that <laughs> that it's a very Mel Brooksian. Um, the uh, the the jury foreman who's played by Bill Macy I think it's his first movie you know before he before he was on Maud yeah uh, Bill Macy not William H Macy right, right. Um, uh, what a great line Your Honor we find that we find the defendants incredibly guilty <laughs> hey, and though he's just exasperated like, yeah what? we can't listen to this anymore yeah of in- course they're g- yeah incredibly oh, so. guilty <laughs> it's great and uh and, and what a what a great line yeah it's uh you know i i, th- I think it's a a damn near perfect film um and uh you know it's not every movie let's see this is number 32 six or 37 i think episodes that i've done so 36 or 37 movies from the book right and you know i haven't loved every single one and sure. so it's it's nice when we get to one of these movies that you know i'm happy to sit down and watch it for yeah. the you know for the 12th time because sure right it's yeah, so you had every- you had seen this one before. oh yeah oh yeah a lot yeah all right let's get into uh some pairing recommendations here uh Listen, Jim and I agree. If you've never seen the producers, uh, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, my gosh, perfect time to revisit it. It's sure. I mean, it's it's so funny, and it it'll, you know, we're still kind of mid pandemic here, and it's just that you know the it'll bring out those belly laughs that you know are kind of soul cleansing, you know, in a time like this. So I think you know it's it's always nice to get to movies like that. Yeah, love it. Uh, um, okay, so let's get into our pairing recommendations here. Uh, just right into it, Jim. Let me hear your first one. Okay, well, uh, this, uh, you know, I've been a um, repertory film programmer for 20 years now, um, maybe more than that. I've been, you know, I was in the, with the Chicago Film Festival 25 years ago um, and did some repertory programming within the festival, too, um, including uh, screening in 1998 when I brought... Uh, Monty Hellman to Chicago for uh, the screening of Tulane Blacktop at the, oh, at the Music Box, which uh, he 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 told me. Monty told me afterwards it was the it was the greatest screening he ever had for that film in North America oh. with the biggest audience too. We had like yeah. seven hundred people watching. But anyway, in two thousand one, I became uh, the curator of film exhibitions at George Eastman House in Rochester, New York, and I programmed the House Theater, the Dryden, for. Uh, more than nine years, and my very first series was a tribute to cult movies on its uh, original publication. Oh. Uh, that was in uh, March of 2002, uh, and Danny Perry came out and uh, spoke after a screening of Harold and Maude. We talked. We had a great time. We hung out that weekend watched movies from The Vault and um, 
and uh, including one film that he had written about in Guide for the Film Fanatic, or I think had it on one of his lists, um, Jacques Tourneur's Stars in My Crown, which oh, yeah. uh, another film he turned me on to, uh, which I watched with him. It was my first time that weekend. Whoa. But um, in- included in that series would be a film that, um, included in that series at Eastman House w- would be a-, a film that uh, I would later show again on a double feature with the producer. So I actually have... Oh, nice. Paired this movie. Uh, and that is another of the 100 films included in, in cult movies. Uh, Carl Reiner's Where's Papa? Made love. I'd never experienced anything like it before. It was wonderful. I was so happy. And then... I rolled over to kiss my wonderful Leonard. He made a caca on the bed. What? Well, I couldn't believe it either. I said to him, I said, how could you do such a thing? And do you know what he said? He said, doesn't everybody? Which, you know, we talked about Reiner uh, a while ago and how, you know, Brooks uh, never included him in any of his movies aside from that voice cameo in, in History of the World. Um, and, and, and I always kind of suspected that that had maybe had something to do with uh, competitiveness on both of their oh. parts. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. I bet it is to a certain extent. I'm sure, sure. they were both, both men with egos. Uh, certainly there was something that they probably shed, you know, in the last 20 years when they were, you know, when you heard the stories and actually you've seen it in documentaries where Mel Brooks is going over to Carl Reiner's house every night and having dinner and they're watching movies together after they're both widowed, um, you know, really touching and clearly their, 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 their friendship, you know, went, I think extended close to 70 years. Yeah. But, you know, back to that competitiveness, I think Where's Papa is Carl Reiner's attempt to do something that outshocks the producers uh, with, you know, with humor and Jewish humor. Um, and, and in a way it does and is still more shocking to this day. Uh, I don't think Laugh for Laugh. Right. It's as funny a movie as the producers, uh, which is which is. To, to say that it's still an extremely funny movie. Yeah, yeah. Also, a major cult movie for me that, you know, my father had described for me scene by scene before I ever saw it, one of, one of his favorite films. Uh, and, and in fact, I got to see it when we were living in New Jersey. We went to, drove into New York and saw at the Theater 80 St. Mark's, which was a, a rear projection repertory theater yeah. uh, in 1983. Three or eighty-four, we saw a double feature of Harold and Maud and Where's Papa oh. with my whole family, and um, <laughs> the, the 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 shocking moments in Where's Papa are, are more shocking to me today than they were on me as a as a fourteen-year-old or fifteen-year-old, uh, however old I was at, at the time of discovering it. Yeah. Um, in in particular, the um, you know the scene where. 
Ron Lehman is forced to rape an uh, an undercover <laughs> policeman. There's in another Central one. Park. So that, yeah, you know, we uh, I, that is one movie I covered earlier this year, and I watched it for the first time. But it was kind of the same thing. Here we are in the producers. We're laughing about Nazis. And then here we are in Where's Papa? I'm sorry, but we're laughing during this horrific incident. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's far more upsetting today. In fact, I, we, I programmed Where's Papa as, you know, at least four times. And we, sh- we showed it just this last summer uh, as a kind of tribute to George Siegel and Ron mm-hmm. Liebman, who just passed away. And Carl yeah. Reiner, too, of course. You know, I, I don't think audiences are, are comfortable with laughing at that. But no. <laughs> there were there were there were a few chucklers in the house uh, at that sequence and, and a couple of others. Uh, I, 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 I think, you know, Reiner, I think, had done just two features prior to Where's Papa. He had done Enter Laughing, which is his autobiographical story. And then he'd done a film that's underrated called The Comic, yeah. uh, which reunited him with Dick Van Dyke. And uh, that's kind of a, a, a an amalgam of uh, Buster Keaton and uh, a couple other silent comedians, uh, their story, and very, very, very different from Where's Papa, which is very much a part of the cycle of of I, I think like those kind of fun city movies that yeah. that Jonathan talks about. You know, it's very specifically New York, a movie outside of its time that is very specific about the time it's in, which is this. <laughs> post 60s post kitty genovese uh new york uh that is a hell on earth right and uh you know put into that a um you know the most domineering uh jewish mother and uh her most uh masochistic son you know and it's 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 a night it's a true nightmare comedy it's it's you know despite the fact that Max and Leo are unrepentant at the end of the producers and their, their green greed remains unshattered. Whereas Papa is a, is by comparison, a much, much darker, much, much less buoyant uh, comedy, especially if you see it with the okay. original ending. Okay. So I was going to ask you, which one do you prefer? Well, which, uh, which ending do you prefer? All the prints I've been able to show for the last 20 years have been the one with the with the extended ending, which was never never shown theatrically. It was shown to preview audiences in 1970, 71, before the film was released. And Reiner, right, you know, probably rightly decided that audiences need a little lift at the end. Right. So he has George and, and Louise driving off, and, uh, and there's a laugh, and, and that's the end of the film. Um, but all the new prints that have been made went back to the original negative, uh, where they must have been just cutting the scene out of individual prints that were already made. Oh, shit. And so when they went back to the original negative, all the prints that have been made since have this sequence have at the, the end of it. Okay. So if you rent the film from from the distributor today, you're gonna get you're gonna get this version. Oh, on the great. on the on the Blu-ray, it's a it's an extra. Right. But if you get to see it in a repertory theater, well I'll I'll just say this. It's a much darker ending. Yeah. But it's also a much more committed ending and a much more logical ending given the given the nature of the characters, yeah. um, which if you don't know what we're talking about, it basically uh, entails uh, George Siegel, uh, his fiance finally abandons him because he's so henpecked by his mother and George Siegel just surrenders to his mother and literally gets into bed with her at the end and tells her he's Papa. <laughs> uh, you don't get much darker than that. No, and you know, I, I, I talk about it a lot that, I love 
the melancholic feeling kind of sad movies give me. And so like, for instance, November, I usually only watch like super heavy family dramas. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I I love the way those movies make me feel. You're in a that, seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, I just watch ordinary people day after day right. after day after day. Uh, but uh, I'd only seen Where's Papa with the, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the madcap slapstick ending where they speed off, you know, they're over cranking the film and, you know, they speed off into the distance and it's over. And so I finally saw the original ending earlier this year. And I agree. I, I think it's the right ending, but also yeah. for me, it's it's really sad and yeah, <laughs> the oh, way that makes me feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's awful. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it's not it's not the ending you want for. Con- and I can tell you, we had about uh, 70, 80 people show up to see it uh, this summer, and it's it's a bummer. They walk out of the theater, you know, with their heads <laughs> down. They are not laughing. No, uh, even though it's you know. Uh, so, you know, the movie goes to some other darker places, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Where's Pop. I think it's yeah, a very, very, very funny film. Uh, the, the ending, um, the original ending almost seems like John Waters. Uh, but you know, even John, I don't think John Waters ever got that <laughs> melancholic and dark. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. 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 What a great movie. And I think that would make for it. <clears throat> Uh, I mean, I, I would love to be able to be in a theater that where you've programmed that double feature. I think that's great. I think I did it on New Year's Eve 15 years ago. Or nice. So. Oh, what a yeah. fun night. That's yeah. great. Where's Papa first, though? You, you got to oh. have the producer second. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Plus, you have, you know, you have the you have the, the teaming of of Reiner and Brooks. Yeah, know, I think more. that's that's beautiful. That's really, really I, I really that's a really special uh, pairing there. Um, okay, so I went with a kind of, well, my first one is a con man, and it's a movie I'd never heard of starring George C. Scott. Uh, ah, from Flim Flam from, Man. The Flim Flam Man from the same year, maybe a year before the producers. Yeah. <laughs> what? After sharing the expenses, your half comes to exactly uh, $21, sir. Profitable hour, lad. You work that old Scrooge like a natural-born shield. You took tenner for $42? He's a greedy man, isn't he? <laughs> uh, it's more like 30 but one thing leads to another, and there is a healthy demand for love potions in Ellis Bend. And there's unhealthy demand for potency pills over at Sawmill. And, of course, at three for five dollars, there's always a demand for diamonds. Diamonds? They're just glass. I never said they wouldn't. Just signified they're stolen, that's all. You can sell anything on God's green earth if a customer believes it's stolen. But, it, yeah, from the, the Guy Owen novel and, uh, you know, Irvin Kirshner, of course, directed it. You know, Empire Strikes Back, Eyes of the Lower Mars. Great Jerry um, Goldsmith score. The score is phenomenal. George C. Scott is in, I mean, like, the heaviest... Like yeah. talk about theater, the heaviest theatrical makeup. I mean, he's just. I, th- I think after Orson Welles, he's and Laurence Olivier, he's the actor who like the putty nose the most. <laughs> I mean, you can you can see the painted on lines, and it all adds to you know his you know he he's this guy. Well, what's his name? He, he's oh Mordecai Jones is his character name, and so like it you know he's kind of hopping train and and thumbing rides to uh, different small towns, and he's kind of way conning his way across. 
uh, of rural America, that, which reminds me of the line um, <laughs> Max says, uh, oh, what does he say? Something about con. Uh, Glad I could con you. Is that what he says? Oh, to and Leo? Producers? Yeah. Yeah, something oh, like, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I knew I could con you. Thank you. What? <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing. No, Do yeah, the books. Ex- Do the exactly. books. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... George C. Scott, I think, talk, talk about another big, big personality. Uh, but this is super fun. Uh, he meets up with um, Michael Sarazen. Yeah, Michael Sarazen. I mean, it's such a great performance from him. He's called Curly in the movie, and he meets a, a pretty girl. And you know, um, at a first, gr- they're kind a, of- a very nice performance by Sue Lyon. I think maybe yeah, maybe Lyon. the best the best movie she did, other than uh, John Ford's. Uh, the, seven women uh after after lolita oh yeah yeah and you know so they're kind of conning their way but then curly gets his conscience and and he's got his eye on on sue lion and and uh you know they kind of pull one final big con at the end but all the while they're being chased by you know kind of cops and agents from wherever led by harry morgan right who you know i I, I grew up watching MASH, my dad's favorite TV show. And so he was always Colonel uh, Colonel Potter. Potter, yeah. But, okay. To me, uh, and he is like just this bumbling idiot in the Flim Flam Man. And so it's a really different type of character for him, for me. Anyways, really charming movie. Uh, I wish, I mean, I had to watch it on YouTube. I wish there was a better way to see it. Because it, it, it's it's a really, really fun movie. You can't believe there's not like some, you know, nice Blu-ray of it out. Pretty sure that uh, it's probably out of print now, but I'm pretty sure Twilight Time did a Blu-ray of it. Oh, I bet you're right. Yeah. I bet you're right. But get a hold of it if you can, because, you know, I don't think Disney's going to be re-releasing those 20th <laughs> Century Fox films like that uh, anytime right. soon. Yeah, maybe some, Maybe they'll let someone license them again, but uh, it's tough. Tough call. For sure. All right, let's hear your next one. Okay, so the producers is very much uh, falls into a subgenre of movies or movie musicals or even pseudo musicals that focus on the impresario, right? This producer figure who has, against all odds, to you know bring all the different factors together to uh, to put on a show, you know, and that's, you know, casting and, and, and paying the bills and, you know, and, and, and being a kind of, um, comfort, uh, and mentor to everyone around them involved in, in the production. And, you know, tip, tip mostly, mostly with actors, you know, uh, you see a little bit of that with, uh, uh, with Max and his kind of encouragement of LSD, but it's right. also, but also with his encouragement of, you know, Roger Debris, you're the only one who can do this, and <laughs> and you know, and that and that uh, that sort of thing. But uh, and this is a tradition that you know goes back, I'm sure, to silent cinema, but definitely in the um, Busby Berkeley musicals of the early '30s. Uh, you know, Warner Baxter and Forty Second Street, to yeah. name another film uh, in uh, in cult movies. Yeah. Uh, James Cagney and Footlight Parade. Uh, I'm sure there are some 40s films uh, that I'm not thinking of, but there's a, a, a key film from the 50s is Jean Renoir's French Can-Can, where Jean Gabin has the role of the impresario. And it's 
you know, one of these these guys. And it's something that goes all the way through to today. Um, most recently um, in uh, the animated uh, musical Sing, where the Matthew McConaughey voiced uh, Koala Bear oh, is, yeah. is, is, you know, the kind of classic impresario who is, you know, trying to save his, save his theater. And, and if I was going to go with, you know, the, 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 the oddest pairing, I'd probably pick Ben Gazzara's Cosmo Vitelli in uh, Cassavetti's Killing of a Chinese Bookie uh. to, to play with the producers. But uh, a movie that's, I think, a better fit because uh, the impresario is, is, is also a con artist who's, who's trying to accomplish one thing while, while, while finding he... Uh, has a special calling, and that is uh, Jack Black in School of Rock. Oh, yeah. Okay, people, pay attention because I do not want to have to fail you. I thought you didn't believe in grades. Of course I believe in grades. I was testing you, and you passed. Good work, Summer. Four and a half gold stars for you. Now listen, you guys, you know what? Normal kids would have been stoked to slack off, but not you guys, because you're not normal. You're special. And because I think you guys have the right attitude, I think it's time we started our new class project. A science project? No, it's called Rock Band. Is this a school project? Yes, and it's a requirement. And it may sound easy, but nothing could be harder. It will test your head and your mind and your brain, too. Will other schools be competing? You could say that. You could say that every school in the state will be competing for the top prize. What's the prize? A win will go on your permanent record. Hello, Harvard, yo. Uh, which, you know, I think has, has, has qualities. And I think Jack Black has a lot of qualities uh, that Zero Mostel has, you know, this kind oh of, my you God, know, yeah. commanding. I think he's a better actor. Uh, and I think he's, uh, I think he's a better reactor too, uh, but a, but a great co- oversized comic personality. And he's, uh, you know, he's just he's just trying to you know pay some bills and and get his uh, get his get himself to the battle of the bands. But along the way, he finds he has a talent for encouraging others, uh, and he's successful. Um, I oh, think where where fun. where it differs is that he's you know. He actually finds his calling and and sticks with it and 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 comes at it on in the end honestly. Right. Where, whereas uh, <laughs> Leo and Max are always trying to uh, <laughs> pull over a scheme and then subvert their own scheme at the right. end and and they and they, and and continue it uh, even after they're put behind bars. Oh, that is a fun pairing. I uh, yeah, it's a super charming movie, and you know the the music in it is really freaking good too. Oh, I love it. Uh, I uh, I also got to see the uh, a touring production of the Broadway musical version, which oh, yeah. has added songs by Andrew Lloyd Webber. But the the best song still remains the the song that's in the movie. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so I'm doing another con artist, and I'm doing uh, <laughs> uh, one of my all time favorite actors, Steve Martin, and it's not Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. But it's from 1992. It's Leap of Faith. Kill you hey, Matt, give you people a wake-up call. A prisoner. And Thomas was a prisoner of fear. Amen. Richard. So he got himself a lawyer for his Lord business, a guard for his babies, a $2,000 hairpiece, and a world-class doctor. But was Tom happy? No. No, you know. 
Because when Thomas finally came to me, he still had the fear. And the fear is bigger than lawyers and doctors. The fear is bigger than money or real estate. There's only one thing bigger than the fear, my friends. Only one thing. And that one thing is the faith. Faith that the universe will need his skill. Faith that this woman loves what's in his soul, not what's on his head. Faith that his children will be protected, not by a man with a 357 Magnum, but by the man with the 12 gauge supercharged grenade launcher album. <laughs> Directed by Richard Pierce. And do you remember this movie? I do. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, Isn't Jack Black in that too? Uh. No, Philip Seymour Hoffman's yeah, in it. Yeah, the cast is huge. Like Lucas Hoff, Meatloaf, Philip Seymour Hoffman, MC Ganey, uh, LaShans, Broadway lady. Uh, but Deborah Winger is kind of the romantic interest. Uh, yeah. Two, the sheriff played by Liam, Liam Neeson. Neeson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cast is wild. But I remember seeing this in the theater with her. It was probably the drive-in, I think. Uh, we, my family would go to the drive-in all the time and they were playing this and I was probably, you know, I would I would have been 10 or 11 when this came out and so, like I said, Steve Martin, I've always loved him, grew up with him, uh, but this, like, I didn't like this Steve Martin because he's kind of a bad guy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but he plays this, um, like, traveling preacher kind of fake faith healer guy yeah. and their, their truck gets... Uh, broken down in some small town and so they they set up this big tent revival and um you know they're in texas liam neeson he's the sheriff uh and he doesn't believe he and a couple other people don't believe what's happening but um you know lessons are learned stuff happens it's kind of a you know i'm not a huge fan of the ending it's a little too feel good for me like i said i love the sad shit but you know it was fun to watch it all these years later and uh, you know, come at it as a as an adult, and I I, I really appreciated it. I like this movie. Yeah, I I saw it when it came out. It didn't make that much of an impression on me. I think my big takeaway from it at the time was that it was probably written with some very specific actor in mind who had that kind of charismatic evangelical kind of thing. Which Steve Martin, you know, yeah, I can I know why they thought of him for the part eventually. Because uh, he's, you know, he's, uh, I'm sure he's, he's done Preachers before. I think I remember him doing it on one of those uh, TV specials he did in the late 70s or early 80s. And, and uh, I don't remember him it being a very particularly bad performance, but I remember thinking like, now this really has to be somebody who yes you 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 love to hate you know and yes. hate and hate to love uh, at the same time you know someone who is you know you can you can just imagine yourself being almost seduced by them and and uh, right. and, and believing in them and uh, and it just I just I felt that Steve Martin was maybe just a little too self-conscious he he did a handful of movies like that where you know he was trying to stretch himself as an actor and he's he's not bad but you know he's uh, he's he's a, a flair for a certain kind of comedy and it's just a little little off. Yeah, he he. You know, uh, I think Parenthood uh, is a 
kind of good example. I very very funny movie. I love that movie. Yeah, but, but it's but of, it should have but it, but the but it clearly was written for Tom Hanks, right? Right. Like exactly. It, yeah. Exactly. I think Steve Martin needs to lean into. You know, he's he's doing the the new series on Hulu, Only Murders in the Building. Which yeah. if you haven't watched no, yet, I'm, I'm I, looking forward to it. I'm, oh I'm going to get to it soon. It's perfect. But like that's the Steve like what he does. He does perfectly, and that's what people love. And I, I will always watch Steve Martin, no matter what. Um, but anyways, yeah. Le- Leap of Faith, you know, uh, it, it was it was a fun one to revisit, you know, whether he's the exact person for the part or not. But um, all right, let's hear your last one here. Okay, now I'm going to go to the most esoteric place uh, to, and, and, and I'm going to do a Hitler pairing here. <laughs> uh, and we're going back to 1944. Uh, to a movie called The Hitler Gang. I want it understood that I will decide what we will use and what we won't use. I am the leader of this party. As for Rosenberg being a fanatic, I want him to be a fanatic. If we demand fanatical faith in our followers, we must have that same fanaticism ourselves. Shall I proceed? No. I agree that we must eventually eradicate the poison of the Christian doctrine. But at present, we are too small a group. The church is too big. Please, please, Hitler's throat. You know you mustn't smoke. We must be careful to choose an enemy we are sure we can defeat. Some small minority group. What about the Bolsheviks? Yes. If we say we are going to fight the Bolsheviks, that will automatically bring the white-collar workers into our ranks. Not only them, but big business. Big business everywhere. With that as a slogan, we can win friends in France, England, America, all over the world. We are not ready for that yet. The Hitler Gang. Uh, the Hitler Gang. And uh, it has otherwise no relation to, to Mel Brooks, although it is directed by Woody Allen's father-in-law. <laughs> uh, what? John Farrow. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it is uh, a really, really entertaining uh, movie that depicts the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich in Germany over a, I think, a 10 to 12 year period, I think starting in the late 20s and going up through the early years of the war, and does so uh, in uh, less than two hours. I think the movie's about 100 minutes long, and using the language of 30s gangster films. Now it's a Paramount film, okay. but it's really very much told in the tradition of 30s Warner Brothers gangster movies like oh. The Roaring Twenties. It is a, uh, it is a, it is a low budget film, uh, certainly made uh, on a wartime budget and certainly approved for propaganda reasons. <laughs> um, but there are no stars in it. It's uh, written by the, uh, written by the accomplished screenwriters Goodrich and Hackett, who had so many great credits. Uh, but an actor named Bobby Watson plays Hitler, who had, you know, I think he had played him in several other films. And there's a few recognizable character actors in the film, including several performers who had, um, who had fled uh, Nazi Germany, mm. uh, either uh, for, for, because they were Jewish or for other political reasons. Um, and I showed this uh, at our... Uh, Wisconsin Film Festival here in Madison, I think four or five years ago, uh, we had a 35 millimeter print of it, and um, oh, wow. it's a it's a um, 
it's a it's a terrific film that you know rightly and um, justly shows Hitler as a screaming maniacal man child, <laughs> you know, uh, who's uh, had all the dumb luck in the world to become this horrible uh, murderous tyrant. But uh, d- does it shows it in a very uh, uh, you know in a very effective, fast paced, and uh, dare I say entertaining light. Yeah. Okay, so Bobby Watson, I'm looking at his IMDb here. Uh, one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, at least six movies where he played Hitler. Including, uh, is that a Three Stooges short? No, a short subject called Na- Nazty, N-A-Z-T-Y, Nuisance from 1943, <laughs> which is the year before the Hitler gang. Yeah. Uh, which it seems to be a comedy short. I don't know if that was a Columbia short or not. But I then, mean, <laughs> and he plays him in a uh, uh, late Vincent Minnelli film, The Four Horsemen yeah. of the Apocalypse. Yeah, man, that's just uh, that's wild to me that you know he made a career for a short time. I mean, it looked like he had an expansive career, but for a short time, I'm the Hitler guy. Dude looked like Hitler. <laughs> How unfortunate. <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, uh, my last one, I'm going silly. I'm going, <laughs> I don't know why I went this direction, but I just thought it'd be fun. It's uh, And this, just this year, maybe last year, I've kind of really started uh, discovering and getting into Abbott and Costello movies. And so uh, I watched Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man right. from 1951. <laughs> they're private eyes, they are. And they're tickled to death, as you may be, that their first job is a murder case. Only a man they can't see is driving them to distraction. I said pull over to the... A blonde is trying to booby trap them. And the syndicate is trying to set them up for a quick one, too. <laughs> and i thought what a fun pairing that would be with the producers so uh directed by charles lamont and of course starring bud abbott and Lou Costello, and uh they are kind of these bumbling private detectives and uh they're on the case after this boxer called tommy nelson is accused of like murdering his manager Tommy's trying to get away from the cops and and the authorities. So he takes the serum that makes him invisible. And then Lou has to get up and box in his place. And so Tommy being invisible is standing in the ring next to Lou telling him what to do while Tommy is throwing the hooks and the jabs and everything. Um, You know, it's your typical Abbott and Costello. If you know, I told my mom I was, you know, getting into Abbott and Costello and she rolled her eyes. Oh, I can't stand them. <laughs> you know, I get it. It it's it might be too silly for some people, but you know, I I love them. I think they're hysterical out of Well, I'm a, of the, I'm a fan of Abbott and Costello, but why why this particular one with the producers? What's the uh... Um There's I guess that the the con aspect of Lou okay. being in the ring uh, acting like he's boxing while Tommy's actually doing the boxing. 
Um, so I think there's that that little con aspect of it. Just a, a silly evening, I figured. Of oh, I'm a huge fan. My my friend and colleague uh, Ben Reiser is a, also a an even bigger Abbott and Costello fan, and he's he's turned me on to a couple of them that I I hadn't seen before. In Society, which is terrific. Um, I think that's the one that's got the Susquehanna Hat Company in it, or at least one of the films where they do that. And uh, and I also really like the time of the time of their lives, which is the uh, the one that has the the revolutionary America setting, and then then it gets uh, updated a little bit. But those are both uh, two of their best. My 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 brother Pat's also been into them lately, but he told me recently to at, at all costs avoid uh, Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd with Charles. Oh Lawton. no! Yeah. Yeah, apparently that was one of the ones that uh, even Universal said they wanted nothing to do with, so they made it independently, and 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 apparently it's it's awful. But <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm unfortunately I'm gonna have to see it one of these days because I'm, yeah. I'm a Lawton fanatic, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh. Well, Jim, thanks a lot for doing this. I had a blast talking with you. Same here. Um. What uh What do you have going? Are you pro- programming anything fun coming up here? Sure. Well, our Cinematheque here in Madison uh, is ongoing. Uh, we have a lot of great things coming up. Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but if you're in Madison or you want to make a road trip, we've got uh, New Indian Cinema. We're showing uh, Joan Micklin Silver films coming up. We have Ooh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We're going to welcome... Uh, Ken Quapis in person in November and show Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. And then he's going to introduce a screening of American Graffiti, one of his favorite movies. Oh, uh, fun. And then we're going to show more American Graffiti, which is a underrated movie. Um, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. We're going to be getting ready for our Wisconsin Film Festival in uh, April. Nice. Which will be coming up. So uh, if you like movies, come and join us. We have a nice combination of repertory films and, and new films from around the world are you and deep we, in the uh in the throes of judging right now are you starting to get submissions yeah i just uh you know i don't i don't deal too much with open submissions a little bit i think you know people contact me sometimes and, and have me look at their films but there's a whole section of the festival uh, the only festivals where we accept open submissions are for um movies that are uh connected to wisconsin and that's oh that, yeah yeah that section is really looked over by uh by ben riser yeah and uh, ben is also the innovator of our uh cinematech podcast which we call cinema talk and uh we've th- we've had some good episodes we did quite a few during uh lockdown but when we couldn't show films in our theater we were offering films at home to watch at home and then we had a podcast uh tie-in for almost every Oh, every cool. every at home viewing we did so and and those are all still up uh most recently we did one um on from noon till three the charles bronson film for, directed by frank d gilroy written and yeah. directed by frank d gilroy and we um we uh, i did a conversation with his son dan gilroy who directed uh, nightcrawler and, yeah uh, Roman oh Israel i didn't and, realize that was his dad yeah uh oh. so we you know we had a nice uh Nice talk. That's one I'm really proud of. But we, you know, we've got a bunch of them up there. We did a talk with Bill Forsyth about Gregory's Girl. Nice. Uh, we had Alexander Payne talking about uh, my hometown. Talking, Om- yeah. All oh, right, Omaha. Right. Talking about uh, Il Grande Silencio, the Sergio Corbucci western. 
And uh, and we had uh, Danny Perry's brother uh, Jerry uh, Gerald Perry talking about uh, uh, his documentary that he directed last year, um, "The Rabbi Goes West." So there's lots. There's lots. There's we have I think over fifty. No, maybe maybe more because we recorded a bunch of them for the Wisconsin Film Festival. Too. Oh wow! Uh, okay. So I think there's probably you know maybe seventy episodes or something at this point, and then most of them have gone up in the last year and a half. So oh, very cool. So that's 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 the extent of my presence online. I'd say <laughs> it's that podcast. Uh, and and you are I don't know when Scott gets back from tour, but uh, you've been filling in, and th- I think this will right th- this will come out. But but you, if you go back and listen to you know Jim has been on several several episodes of of uh, seventy movies we saw in the uh, in the seventies, uh, going back to when when Mike was still with us. Yeah, um, and those are my <laughs> I loved the first time you came on. And where Mike referred to you as the ombudsman. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, uh, you know, notes and corrections and stuff. But I mean, yeah. I was taking notes like a madman. It was such a great episode. <laughs> and so, yeah, I uh, think I was irritating them with my texts and things <laughs> like that. But, um, but so they invited me on to kind of, uh, vomit it all out on, uh, over the program. And I, 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 I I regret if I caused even a moment's irritation to to Mike. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy, just a great guy and a great and a great podcast host. If I can, yeah. if I can be, you know, if I can learn to be one fifth as engaging as uh, as he was, I'll, I'll I will have accomplished something for sure, for sure. Um, well, for the, uh, my listeners, if you go to columbusvhughes.com, uh, you'll find links to. Uh, everything happening at the Cinematheque, you'll find uh, links to the podcast that, that Jim does and uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. You can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Don Lee on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. It's A K D O N E L L Y. Thank you for listening. We're back next week. We've got three more, three more, I believe, episodes for season two. Uh, next week, we have Emma Westwood talking sci-fi and forbidden planet jim thanks again my friend thank you thank you for having me i enjoyed myself a lot